If you would, please open your Bibles up to the beginning of Matthew 26, where we find our scripture text for this morning's feeding from God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price in the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we come now to your word and we pray that I will preach it as an oracle of God and that our thoughts will not be on ourselves or me, but that our thoughts will be on this woman, on Judas, on the disciples, and on our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Now may the word that comes from my mouth and the thoughts, the meditations on every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With Matthew 26, we begin the Passion narrative. This is the account in the Gospels where the death of our Lord Jesus Christ is at center stage. And many people have observed over the years that you really can take the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and you can say that each one of the Gospels, all the Gospels, really are an account of the Passion, but with long introductions. And that's really true, because right here, what you're coming to is the reason that Jesus came. Jesus did not come to show us what a good man could be. It is true, he was a good man. And he does show us what godliness is. is. But that's not why he came. That's why liberals think he came, just to show us how an enlightened man would live if he were in the power of God. But Jesus came to die, and that's the great scandal, that he didn't come to live, but he came to die. 
And so now we pick up the story of the account of his death proper. And you'll notice as you look at the text that the first thing that's said at the beginning of Matthew 26 is, and it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words. Now, what are all these words Jesus had finished? Well, I want you to look back a few chapters, and I want you to look at the actual um, words that he has been teaching. Start with me, if you would, at chapter 21. So this is five chapters earlier, and you notice at the beginning of chapter 1 that it says, when they approached Jerusalem. So Jesus had been out in Nazareth, and Nazareth was like the south of the United States, and Judea was the north. All right, Judea was uppity, well-educated, and Judeans looked down on people from Nazareth, from Galilee. You know, it was, it was, it was a dirty place. This is the way all northerners look at the south, right? We've all learned this in in public school, those of us that went to public school, that the purpose of living in the South is so that you can be looked down on by the North. And if you look at judicial history in the United States, it's largely comprised of the North browbeating the South about whatever its latest uh, issue is. All right. But that's not scripture. This is my interpretation of American judicial history, so throw it out. I don't care. But you have to understand that everybody has people they look down on. People in Bloomington look down on people from Martinsville. If you're from Martinsville, I'm sorry, but that's what Bloomingtonians do. And people from Martinsville look down on... Nobody's going to admit to being from Martinsville. Where? Bedford. Yes. People And people in Bedford look down... Mitchell. And people in Mitchell look down on Bloomington. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so here we are today, looking back into a period of time where Jesus comes from the despised area. He's a no account. And most of his disciples are also from the despised area, all right? And now he goes up to Washington, D.C., goes up to Bloomington, he goes up to Wheaton, he goes up to Chicago, right? In other words, he goes up to Jerusalem. When they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there. So the first thing that happens is they have the triumphal entry where Jesus is welcomed as the king he was to the royal city, right? Then immediately what happens at the end of that account, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, at the end of that account, we read in verse 11 that Verse 10, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this, and what's the answer everybody gets? Who is this? What's the answer everybody gets? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So everybody said he's a prophet. Now, what does a prophet do? Well, a prophet teaches, preaches. A prophet says the things you don't want to have said, right? That's what a prophet does. So... Does he fulfill their expectations? Well, look at the next verse, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's nest, a robber's den. Now, right here, I want you to put yourself in the situation. Don't read scripture and allow yourself a way out, an escape hatch. 
Does this have any application to us today? The prophet comes to the royal city. And he goes to the church, the temple. And it's filled with money changing. All with perfect intentions. People from foreign lands would come. They needed to change their money so that they could buy the right apparatus for their worship at the right, you know. One person showed up at the church with a New Living Translation and release, realized that everybody at that church uses New American Standard Bible, and so they needed to change their New Living Translation for their New American Standard Bible. And it was all in the interest of proper worship. So the whole thing was like this mess of money changing and selling and buying. And Jesus is a prophet. And he goes in and he just cleans it out. Is he patient? No, he's not. Is he tolerant? No, he's not. Is he gentle? No, he's not gentle. Is he loud? Yeah. Tables aren't overturned without being loud. Is Jesus Jesus? I mean, isn't that really what the question comes down to? No. He's really not Jesus. He has forgotten his better self. Is he Rob Bell's Jesus? No, it's the very opposite of Rob Bell's Jesus. Don't be hoodwinked by that false prophet. There's a precious video, and the video is called Bullhorn Guy or Bullhorn Dude or something like that. And this video is uh, a video of Rob Bell's Jesus. And, and, and the amazing thing is, the amazing, if you want to get the video, you can go over to Sherwood Oaks. They're selling it there. All right. The amazing thing is, if you watch this video, it turns out when Rob Bell gets done telling you what Jesus is like, guess what? Jesus is Rob Bell. Do you understand? He's, he's made Jesus exactly in his image. Jesus is always gentle, soft. He would never speak through a bullhorn. He would never make noise. He would never call attention to himself. And he certainly wouldn't walk as if he had a problem, you know, and he would, he would not wear ugly glasses and he would not be alienated from the society around him. Rather, he would be sitting suavely at a park bench in the middle of the city with a feminine affect, talking softly. And that's, that's the gospel today. In other words, no, this Jesus is not the Jesus we believe in. He's not a prophet, is he? Watch the Rob Bell video. Jake, raise your hand. Where are you? Jake has it. Watch it. And then when you get done watching the Rob Bell video, search on Google and watch Bullwhip Guy. Everything's exactly like Rob Bell. Precisely. All the words, everything. You know, the... You know, the only thing is the guy in Bullwhip guy has cheap glasses, whereas Rob Bill has super expensive ones. All right. And this guy's sitting in a park bench out in the middle of the country with nobody cool around him. Rob Bell's surrounded by cool dudes in the city. Right. 
And the only thing is, all the words are against the backdrop of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's absolutely, stunningly hilarious. Have you ever thought about everybody laughing as they watch Jesus dealing with the religious leaders of his day? Would it be impious to laugh? I mean, everything is just like so ironic. Everything Jesus does and everything they do, it's like a perfect script. It's so perfect that nobody would ever write it because it's boring. You know? Everything about it is opposite. Absolutely opposite. Do you remember why I'm speaking about this? Here's why I'm speaking about this. Because our first verse says, And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words. In other words, this is the transition from Jesus as a prophet to Jesus as a as a priest. Jesus is now done rebuking us. Not them, us. He had to absolutely destroy the apparatus of holiness. All the hypocrisy and the duplicity, all the scheming, all the the profiteering, all of the money changing, everything you and I are. At the end of worship this morning, I was talking to somebody and... I asked them a question. They said, I can't tell you the answer to that question because if I tell you the answer, you'll hate me. Well, now I'm really interested. (laughs) Tell me. Well, what was it? The person was telling me that what they do is motivated by pride. And, of course, I'd hate them because I can't relate to that. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what pride is. Do you, George? I don't know what pride is. Has your wife ever said you do? No, she hasn't either, so she's perfect. Right? Good job. Stiff up her lip, you know. And so what we do is we go through our lives. We have a scheme. The scheme is that the, 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 the priests and the elders and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the apparatus in the temple courtyards, the money-changing tables, it's all just the way it should be. And when the Messiah comes, he will be embraced and welcomed, and then we'll go to heaven. And the one thing it doesn't let us be is sinners. But, you know, I don't really want to be a sinner because if I'm a sinner, then I have to confess that I'm motivated out of pride. I have to confess I've been stealing from the offering plate. I have to confront the man who's been stealing from the offering plate, and he might say to me, well, what about you? You know, it's much easier to have a conspiracy where sin is always the thing that Scripture deals with, the thing that Martin Luther was dealing with, the thing that Edwards was dealing the thing that... And it's always just slightly behind where you and I are. And what's implicit is that we've learned our lesson. We don't need a prophet anymore because Jesus died for our sins. And so yesterday was Reformation Day, like, what, 490, 490, 487, 493 years ago. Luther nailed his theses up on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel Church, right? And so we've learned that lesson, too, which was back then they did money changing. You know, you got Tetzel doing all the indulgences, and all the money went down to the Sistine Chapel so that they could have Michelangelo painting 
You know, and we've learned our lesson. We don't believe anymore in salvation by works. We believe in grace alone. Because otherwise you're going to be like the Roman Catholics and everything's about money with them. <laughs> right? Right? Huh? Money. That doesn't matter to us. Right? Money doesn't matter to us. We finally arrived at the point where no people of God, well, Bible-believing Christians, Baptist Bible-believing Christians, you know, we're not motivated by money. We've arrived at a point where we're not motivated by money, and so Jesus doesn't have to cleanse the temple today, and we don't ever have to be on guard against our prophets and our priests and our, and our Sadducees and scribes. And, and how dare, I mean, you know, all of their intentions are well. You know, it's just, it, it absolutely kills me. Here, here's an idea. Are you ready for this? Okay. From this day on, If you're going to download one of the sermons preached by a pastor of this church, you're going to pay money. How does that feel to you? Hmm? Does it feel okay to you? You okay with that? Most of you are because there's only one head shaking. Can you imagine men today selling their sermons? Can you imagine that? And yet, nobody thinks a thing of it. And then when somebody dares to ask the question, you know what they say? They say, well, the the money from the sale of the sermon supports our ministry to the city. But, But, you know, there's no connection with the temple at the time of Christ. No connection with the money-changing tables, you know. And then we've got all the Christian publishers and all the good-looking women preaching on television. How come none of the women preachers are ugly? You ever notice that? How come Sarah Palin or Palin isn't ugly? Somehow, men, I always get what we want, don't we? Don't laugh at that. It's true. That's why you're laughing, right? Okay, so Jesus, what does the Bible say? Jesus had finished all these words. Now, imagine Jesus coming today, and the first place he goes is Wheaton, and he... In the broad daylight, after everybody comes out and gives him a ticker tape parade coming to Wheaton, he goes to all the evangelical publishers and he lights them on fire. Arson. And then he goes to Wheaton College and he bombs it. Okay? Do you think he would find a way to die? What if he went to the annual Christian booksellers convention, four billion a year industry, take the largest convention venues in the country? How many hundreds of thousands of square feet? Maybe 300? It would, it, it, it would give competition to McWorld, you know, to Apple's big shows. How about if Jesus went in there and lit it on fire and smashed everything to smithereens? Do you think he would die? After Jesus had finished teaching these things. In other words, what I want you to understand is Jesus was not a victim of his circumstances. Jesus had 
absolute authority. He was a man who was under his father's authority. His father told him what to do, and he did it. Okay? He said, this is where we're headed. And then he gave the religious leaders of his time every possible reason they needed to kill him. So I don't ever want you to get the idea that Jesus was a misinformed idealist. That he had hoped for better things, but somehow we did not rise to his expectations. Jesus was a man in control of his destiny. He confronted our sin. It wasn't theirs, it's ours. He confronted our trading in the name of God. He confronted our temple, our profiteering off of the word of God. He confronted our hypocrisy. He confronted everything about you and me that you know and you think I don't. He knew women inside and out, and he knew men inside and out. He knew children inside and out. He knew singles inside and out. He knew married inside, old and young. And he never, ever bent the word to pander to us. His program was righteousness. And when he finished teaching these things, when he was done being a prophet, then what happened? Well, what always happens when somebody tells us what we really need to know, which is that we kill the messenger. And that's the passion. And that's why he came. He came to die. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Now, this is not the first time <coughs> that he has told them of his coming death. In Matthew 16:21, he says, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So there we have in Matthew 16, again, the next chapter, 17, beginning with verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Matthew 20, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. So there's only one thing we know here from this latest statement where he says to them, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. What do we know that we didn't know before? Well, now we know what the day is that it's going to happen. And the day is the day of the Passover feast. Now Jesus reveals to them the fulfillment of the prophecy given by John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And so here Jesus is. He says, Okay, two days, Passover day, I'm going to be the Lamb. And I'm going to die.
it's really beautiful to think about this because um, Jesus never hid what was happening in his passion. He chose this high religious day that commemorated God's deliverance of his people from bondage and slavery. And deliverance how? By the killing of a of a lamb without blemish, without spot, without defect. You couldn't give your second best to God. It had to be the perfect lamb. And so the lambs are killed, the blood's put on the lentils, the death angel goes through and kills the firstborn, the flocks, the houses, kills all the firstborn males. All right? Except those homes covered by the lamb of God. Okay? Jesus says, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. Right? It's Passover. And at Passover, the city of Jerusalem swelled to four or five times its normal size. So if you think about Bloomington, that would be what? 350,000, from 70,000 up to 350. So it's dense. There are people sleeping in porches and out in the streets, there are people sleeping everywhere. And they're filled with religious fervor, which governments can never quite contain. Right? They'd like to. The whole American enterprise today is separation of church and state. And so what happens? The state's a church. Everybody looks to it like it's God. Sucks on it. But we have separation of church. We don't have any separation of church and state in America. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. Fiction. All right? And I'm not even entering into whether or not we should. I'm just saying we don't have it. The state schools are religion through and through, but it's a religion that claims to be secular and not a religion at all, which, of course, is a big lie. I'm not saying anything about public schools except, let me tell you, religion is everywhere in America. And if you ever speak against the state religion of secularism, you'll be booted, as I was from the University Campus Ministers Association, when I once proposed to the president of the university that instead of just having advocates of sexual perversion at a, at a place that was claimed to be ministering to people with sexual perversions, that they ought to at least be pluralistic enough to put an Orthodox Christian calling people to repent of those sexual sins in that place. And then they'd have a diverse and inclusive and pluralistic and so I got booted from the Campus Ministers Association. I did it very respectfully, very reasonably. I thought with a pretty good vocabulary. <laughs> but the professor of philosophy didn't like me. Don't ever buy that there is such a thing as a secular state. Do you think that communist Russia was secular? 50 to 60 million people murdered. Is that a-religious? Is that anything secular? It has to be religious. The only, the only thing that could possibly cause people to kill that many people would be hatred for God. Is that not a religion? And so we look at what's going on and we look at the degree to which religion is at the center of this conflict. We look at a city filled with religious zealots, and now you have to understand that Jerusalem had an occupying force, that Palestine had the Romans occupying them. Think of Iraq and the Americans. I was reading last night one of the uh, Republican senators 
I forget the guy's name. Um, he was saying that Americans think that it's safe in Iraq. He says, but every second you're there, you have on a combat helmet and like a flak vest, and you're under careful guard wherever you go. Well, that would be somewhat similar to Jerusalem under the occupying force of Rome. And so what role do the religious leaders play? Well, the religious leaders are there to keep tight control on the religious fervor and sentiment of the people, right? Because after all, if you are the leader of a fractious people like the Jews, under a Roman occupying force, the one thing you better do is keep it from bubbling up, let alone exploding, right? Because if you allow it to explode, let alone at a time when the population is mushroomed into five times its normal population, you won't keep your position. And so now we understand what comes next in the text. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now, why were they at uh, Caiaphas's palace, his palatial home, because that's really the best way to translate it. Well, they were there because they weren't at the temple, which was where they should be meeting. And why weren't they at the temple where they should be meeting? Well, they weren't at the temple because this was uh, a backroom cigar smoke occasion. You know, this was uh, Corleone back, you know, hidden, plotting his revenge. In other words, everything about this was corrupt. They couldn't be at the temple because at the temple they could be overheard and then the gig would be up. Everybody would know that they were completely without principle. There was nothing in them except naked greed and naked power grubbing that, that they were corrupt to their core in the name of the living God. And so they went private to an environment where they could control the situation, who would overhear them. And then, if we didn't get it already, we're then told explicitly by Scripture what? gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted. The word plot is not a positive word. If you're plotting, nobody's going to commend you. They plotted together to seize Jesus by what? By stealth. Plotted and stealth and kill. Now, who was it doing this? It was the pastors, and it was the elders, and it was the seminary professors. It was the Vatican. It was General Assembly. It was Presbytery. Whatever you Baptists have, I don't know what you have. Nothing. That's why. <laughs> what do Baptists have? Conventions or something? Maybe. What do Reformed Baptists have? Do they really have a General Assembly? So that's because it's eldership then? Huh, that's interesting. Learn something every day. And so they're gathered, it's the religious leaders, and they're plotting, and they're being devious, and they're corrupt. Okay? And what are they going to do? They're going to kill him. Right? And then verse 5, but they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. It's really 
that's really priceless that they say they're not going to do it during the festival, but they have a problem. They've got to come up with a way to do it. They have to find a way of finding Jesus when he's not surrounded by thousands of people. And so Judas comes to them in a few verses, and he makes a proposal. And as it happens, when do they seize him and kill him? Not just during the festival, but at the high moment of the festival, Passover. And so are they masters of their own fate? Jesus is master of his own fate, isn't he? None of these men are. Is Judas master of his own fate? God orchestrates everything so that the Lamb of God's blood is shed at the moment when the Passover lambs are killed. And it's directly contrary to what the religious leaders say is going to happen. Now we pick up the next part of the story is when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. You could get confused reading this and think that this is an account that's in Luke where in Galilee a woman who is a sinner does much the same thing. There are two accounts of Jesus being anointed by a woman. One is the Luke account. And that's in Galilee, and that's in the home of, do you remember? Simon the Pharisee. And you remember, his objection is not that this is an extravagant waste of money. His objection is that Jesus should not let her do what she's doing if, if he knew what kind of woman she was. In other words, you don't let a prostitute be intimate with you publicly. You know, her hair, washing your feet. If he knew what kind of woman she was, he would not. And then Jesus rebuked Simon the Pharisee. That's in Galilee. Then we have the other occasion, which is here. And it's spoken of in three other Gospels, or two other Gospels, in in Mark and in John. And here we have the account of this woman. Now, we know from various other accounts of what happened here, that, um, well, let me read from Gospel of John, the account. I'm just going to read from verse 4 of John 12. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? So in the Gospel of John, it puts us in Judas' mouth. So the question is, when we read, she did the costly perfume, verse 8, but the disciples were indignant when they said this, when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. There is solidarity between Judas and the rest of the disciples, right? In other words, it's not conflict between John and between Matthew. Judas was probably the spokesman, but all the disciples were in agreement it shouldn't be done. And what was the reason it shouldn't be done? It shouldn't be done because it was not an appropriate use of money. Do you remember the last thing Jesus taught? The last thing he taught was the account of the sheep and goats, and where he talked about the duty of God's people to minister to the poor, those who are naked, those who are hungry, all right? And so they learned the lesson. Then immediately they go into the situation, and here's this woman pouring a bunch of perfume on Jesus. It's worth 300 denarius. 
Or denarii. Well, a denarius is about one day's wage for a working man. So this is a full year of wages that she's just poured out. It's done. All right? And so everybody there, everyone, he's just said he's going to be crucified. He's just said it's going to happen in two days. She anoints him, and their response is to say, what's this? You know, that could have been sold, and we could have used the money to help the poor. Now, here's an interesting thing. We learn from the Gospel of John that Judas was a spokesman, but we also learn what Judas's motivation is, because it says, verse 5, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to your people, to poor people? Verse 6, now he said this, meaning Judas, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, I know that none of you are th- thieves, right? Nothing so gauche as theft would ever motivate any of us today, right? Once again, thank God we have the account of Judas and the disciples so that we don't ever have to deal with that because we've been warned. When I was in high school, a rock opera came out called Jesus Christ Superstar, right? So I listened to it. And I, I learned something I'd never thought about before, which was that Judas had somewhat good motivation for what he did. And since then, I've run a, across a whole bunch of different explanations of Judas' motivation for what he did. You've probably heard them too. You know, Judas was a zealot. He was looking to see the people of God released from their bondage to the Roman occupying force. And he had great hopes for Jesus, but when it became clear that Jesus was on a suicidal mission, Judas jumped off the train. Judas was angry. Maybe Judas felt that he would inherit some of the power that, you know, when the new administration came in, he'd be Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State or Vice President. Um, Judas had to deal with bitterness Judas was a man who loved the people of God, you know, he loved his nation, and he meant well, but his actions weren't the best. And I'm telling you, you read the literature, and what you'll find is explanation after explanation after explanation about what possibly motivated Judas. Okay? But the one thing they'll never say is what the Bible does say. And what the Bible says is that Judas's motivation was what? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. In other words, the one thing the Bible chooses to reveal to us and make very clear is that Judas betrayed Jesus for money. 
Now you say, well, it doesn't say there for money. It just says that that's the reason he rebuked the woman. Well, what does he then do? What does he then do? It says that he went out. One of the twelve, verse 14, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. In other words, when you take his opposition to the woman, and when you add on him going to them and asking for money to betray Jesus, the motivation's clear. Now, If the motivation is clear in Scripture, what is it that causes us to come up with other motivations? Why? Why do we have all these thoughts about what really motivated Jesus when the Scripture is clear and it shows us why he was motivated? Well, the reason is that in self-justification, we always want to defend ourselves against being just crass materialists. You know, it doesn't feel glorious to repent of theft. And the love of money. Oh, Father, forgive me because I love money. No, Father, forgive me for some of my best inclinations don't quite rise to the level of effectiveness. (laughs) I mean, come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? You confess your sins in such a way as to justify yourself, right? Especially if somebody else is listening. Do you think Judas would have confessed that he was pilfering and a thief? Never! What about the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees? Do you think they didn't have their justifications for what they were doing? You know how evil this dude Caiaphas is? You know what he's scheming. You know he's scheming in secret. You know everything about the dude is devious, right? But when Jesus finally gets in front of him, and horror of horrors, it turns out that Jesus had said something against the temple. And Caiaphas takes his clothes and rips them! Crocodile tears. He rips them as if he's filled with grief that anybody would be so impious as to speak about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you know. His grief overwhelms him. He tears his clothes. Well, inside he's cackling with glee that he finally has something that will stick. And so here's Judas. He's a thief. Makes copies at the church, doesn't pay for them. Well, that's been one of my battles my whole life in the ministry. You know, IRS comes along and I have to make all these copies of this form and that form and the other form. And I get to the end. And unbelievably, I'm paid well, I'm not hurting, and what? I find myself wanting to lower. You know, the number of copies, my estimate, because, of course, I, I wouldn't count them. You know, you say, well, don't be a Pharisee. You're tithing your mint and coming. I say, okay, yeah, right, let's get serious. How about when I declare my exemptions on my IRS forms? That's serious money. How about when I take my deductions? How about, and you say, you know, forget about yourself, Tim. Talk about me. Any of you saying that just then? Why did Judas betray Jesus? He betrayed him for 
the most pedestrian, disgustingly dirty, humiliating reason. He was a thief. He loved money. Apostle Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. Some of you have a lot of it. It's been very interesting to me as a pastor to watch how the older I get, the more rich people refuse to be under my preaching ministry. Across my life, this is very, very clear that money and the love of money causes men again and again and again and again and again to reject God and His Word. And what happens there? What happens there is that the love of money causes them, Judas, to reject this woman. What was she doing? This woman was anointing Jesus for his burial. And the other disciples condemned her too. Judas we had a different motivation. He was a thief. But their motivation led them to condemn and to persecute, because did you notice what Jesus says? Jesus says, why do you bother the woman? And bother is not quite strong enough. It's like, why do you cast dispersions? Why, <coughs> why are you oppressing her? Or why are you hassling her? <clears throat> and so here she is. She's believed Jesus. When he says he's going to die on Passover and be crucified, she believes him. So she goes and she gets the most expensive thing she has probably, one year's worth of salary. She takes it. She knocks off the neck. No going back now. You know, you break the neck, and then she pours. Now, why was it such a beautiful thing? Well, back then they didn't have right guard. You know, they didn't have Mitchum or whatever the different deodorant you use. And they also didn't have showers and baths. I mean, not to say they didn't take baths, but you know what I'm saying. And so what? Everything, everything, everywhere you went, close quarters, no state-mandated exchange of fresh air, and it stunk or stank or however you say it. It reeked. And so she comes into this room, and there are a bunch of male bodies there putting off male smells. And she breaks off the thing, and she pours this beautiful perfume. And the place is beautiful with her love of Jesus. This is beautiful. Nobody sees it but Jesus. And they hassle her. And Jesus says, She has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always. He wasn't saying that there isn't a place to avoid extravagance so you serve the poor. But he's saying, Hey, this is the Kairos. This is a critical moment. I'm gone soon. The poor you always have with you. You don't always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my daughter, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of. And at the front of every Protestant church is a table. And on the table it says, in remembrance of me. 
And Jesus says, in remembrance of her. Now, what application is there to us? Well, number one, if you're going to love God, be prepared. It's not going to go well for you. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. It won't go well for you if you're going to love God. I tell you again and again and again, you can face one of two directions. You can face God and forget man, or you can face man and you can forget God. But you can't have split commitments. Your whole life is going to be a decision whether you're going to honor your father, honor your mother, honor the reasonable people in life, honor your religious leaders, or God. And very, very often, just like in the time of Christ, religious leaders will be those most intensely committed to keeping you from honoring God. They will teach you all the sophisticated reasons why you should never accept any teaching of Scripture at face value. But learn their sophisticated explanations of why it isn't true. You can either fear God or you can fear a man, but you can't fear them both. Can't do it! Barbara. (laughs) Who does Barbara fear? Barbara. Barbara Lear. Who does Barbara Lear fear? And this whole church answers what? God. Is Barbara Lear despised? And the whole church answers what? Yes, she is. And who leads me as I preach? Barbara Lear. Do you think this woman led the men? Proto-feminist. Back then when everybody oppressed women, this poor woman. And the men despised her. You know? You know, the thing that's a trip to me is I've heard these dudes go on and on about how this woman and all the other women, they're, they're, they're proto-feminists, you know. Look at, look at God. Look at the way this God made through this woman. And she's a preacher. And that's why we should have women preachers saying women elders, but not women. You watch the women on Trinity Broadcasting Network who preach. They're not women. They're men. And you watch the men who preach today. They're not men. They're women. Was Jesus a woman? Did Jesus sit there with a soft thing on a park bench, kind of being precious? No, he didn't. And what about this woman? Was she up there with a short haircut? and pants and a shirt and a tie telling you what the scriptures tell you. She was a woman. Is Barbara Lear a woman or a man? She's a woman. Who's Judas? He's a man. (laughs) I recognize him. (laughs) Got to provide for the family, don't you know? (laughs) Listen, women, don't let anybody oppress you for having your feminine love for Jesus. If you cry easily because your love for Jesus, cry. It's your glory. It's not your shame. If you want to hold babies, go ahead and hold babies. It's your glory. It's not your shame. You know, 
Let's come to the end of this, and let's just for a moment, let's forget about the disciples, and let's forget about Judas. They're gone, and we got the woman. And we're supposed to be remembering her, so let's remember her, okay? This woman was feminine, and she anointed Jesus extravagantly. And everybody around her was condemning her, right? So what does this mean for you? Well, what this means for you is that, you know, you should have perfume at hand in case that opportunity comes now. Unfortunately, what this means for you is that you, when you change that diaper and the poop smells to high heaven, you should rejoice that God has given you a child with a dirty diaper. And it's your glory to change that diaper, even if your husband never, ever helps you. It's your glory to give birth. It's your glory to lactate. It's your glory to anoint. It's your glory to be a woman. It's your glory. Be feminine like this woman. She didn't get up in front of the disciples and say, I don't think any of you realize um, that he's going to die And I'll bet all of you are going to leave him, but I won't. I'm going to be with him to the end. And did you hear what he just said? If you read Isaiah 53, you'll find that there it prophesies that this is to happen. Scripture must be fulfilled. to this day. You know who I think of? I think of Carol Canfield. Okay, and then I'll end. Carol Canfield, right? Come here, Carol. Where are you? Come on, come on, come on up. Come on. Come on. Come on, come on, come on. Come here. Come on. She's not saying anything, so she's not disobeying Scripture. So, Carol, right? Loving God hassles us about cake mix. Have any of the rest of you, are you fed up with Carol's cake mix? And when she's not hassling us about cake mix, she's hassling us about peanut butter and macaroni and cheese. And who does that stuff go to? It goes to the poor, because Jesus isn't here. And the poor we always have with us. And when Carol drives down the road, and her husband drives down the road, everybody in Bloomington laughs. You would never catch me dead driving their white van. <laughs> Face it, I'm cool. I have no stickers on my car. We don't need her anymore. Really? They've all fallen off the van. Well, I'll put them back on. on. Oh, you got him on your truck now. Okay. Well, that's probably because David drives the van and doesn't want to be embarrassed, right? (laughs) So yesterday I get an email from a relative sent out to the whole Taylor clan, and the email says this. It says, everybody should vote for Barack Obama because Barack Obama is pro-life. He hates abortion, and he's effective in opposing it because he's going to use all the wealth of the country to get rid of poverty, and then women won't have abortions. So in the name of Jesus Christ, vote for Barack Obama, right? Now, no, no, wait, wait, listen. And then 
This person says this. They say, you know, all those people who claim to be pro-life, the only reason that they care to speak up in behalf of the unborn is that they will not care for the poor. They will not give money to the needy. They will not clothe the naked. This is their public morality to hide their private sins. The entire pro-life movement is summed up by a graduate of Columbia Bible College who was a missionary to Papua New Guinea. The entire group of those who have stood against abortion is summed up by her saying that they're all a bunch of crass materialists who have no heart for the poor, no heart for the dirty, no heart for the diseased. And I give you, I give you Carol Canfield. This woman, about the time you're tired, she'll bring you another poor person. And about the time you wish she'd shut up, she'll cry out to those going in to kill their children, I will pay for your medical care. I will take your baby. I will bring you into my home. And she is absolutely typical of those who love Jesus and anoint him. This is her anointing of Jesus. And do you think anybody in town respects her? Carol Canfield? I'd rather die behind her than lead any, in front of any other person. The world's not worthy of her, and she hasn't even been sawn into. And her husband, a man without guile, who spends his life serving us in the, the most disgusting aspects of our life, pornography. And then you wonder why I love this church. And I could go on and on and on here. I could just give you story after story in this church. So Carol, when she sends out an email to her community choral group, at the bottom of the email, the signature is, Rescue Those Who Are Perishing. It's a quote from Proverbs, and underneath it says, End Abortion Now. And here... In our enlightened and pluralistic and diverse and oh so tolerant free speech community, what, what, what? The other members of the chorus say to hell with your signature. If you're going to send us emails, you take that signature off. I will not have that signature coming across my computer screen. And so Carol and David have a little discussion. And they decide, guess what? That they're going to anoint Jesus with oil. And Carol, this despised woman, doesn't take the signature off. And so then they go to the head of the the choir, and they say to him, you make sure that that word of God is not in her email because we hate God. And so this man, now a little aside, this man's a Presbyterian preacher. This man, for years, I served on the board of Presbyterians pro-life with, This is a man who was there when we invited Mother Teresa to come and speak and greeted her with me. This man says to Carol, Carol, pull off the signature. Or better yet, don't. Send it to me. I'll pull it off. Submit to my authority. Bible tells us to submit to authority. 
So you don't have to have it on your conscience. I'll have it on mine. Hey, 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 hey. Do you think Carol did it? She loves Jesus. You say, oh, now you've ended up turning this into a sectarian political. Listen, I don't give a rip if you vote for John McCain. I probably won't. True. I probably won't. (laughs) This is not political. This is about Jesus. The world only understands political power. That's all it understands. Everything we do is to them politics. It's our money. It's our possessions. It's because we're callous. And what? The world only tells us about itself because what? A thief thinks everybody steals. Right? Carol is not doing this because she wants to be proud and walk with her head high in Bloomington. She couldn't do it anyhow because she's short. (laughs) Right? And I've never done this to Carol publicly before, but you realize that the treasure of this church is its women. Look at Annie. Look at Lizzie. Look at Heidi. How about Kristen? That's just these four. That's, that's only, that's just those four. And then behind them, Mary. And behind Lizzie is Terry Ann. What is your mother's first name? Marilyn. Really? Anyhow, behind Annie is Marilyn and behind Kristen is Anne. Listen, people, we don't need the world to tell us what it is to be a Christian woman. The Lord has inundated this church with Christian women. How comforted and led I was by you, Shelley, as we prayed. I thought this is the reason I didn't pray this morning, so I could be led in my prayers by you as I listen to you. But, of course, everybody sitting around you would say, well, there goes Shelley again, making a show of her righteousness. Did you hear how you would, you don't even, aren't even aware of what you do when you pray? Well, you're, you're verbal. <laughs> you didn't even know that. Get more self-aware, woman. How could you be proud of yourself if you're not aware of what you do? That's a joke. Huh? This woman, as far as the gospel goes, will tell the story in remembrance of her. <laughs> not him, her. Okay, so we've remembered her. Jesus said what? He said, stop hassling her. And some of you need to protect your wives and tell people to shut up. If you're a man, that's what you're made for. Let's pray.